Tad, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, <laughs> thanks for having me back on. <laughs> It's been ages. Uh, Tad, okay, so we recorded a podcast the other day, and for some reason my uh, audio is uh, insalvageable, so I switched mics, I knocked on wood, I did all the ritual to mitigate anxiety, and here we are. So uh, thanks for being back. So uh, by way of intro, uh, maybe just talk a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, the work you do and what you're up to now. Sure. Uh, my name is Tad DeLay. I've written a few books on uh, American evangelicalism and religion more broadly, and uh, I specialize in psychoanalytic and political philosophy. And I teach at a number of schools here in Denver and in Michigan. And I, yeah, so I just I teach lots of uh, religious studies and philosophy uh, courses with college students. And I, I find it really enjoyable work and um, yeah, really love what I do. I forgot to mention last time uh, when we were talking, because you teach at Metro State in downtown, and my wife graduated from Metro State. Oh, well, all right. True, tried and true roadrunner, so. (laughs) All right. Very good. Yeah, that's 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 one of my five. So I yeah, I teach at five schools in two time zones, and it's uh, yeah, it's a, it's a it's a bizarre situation, and sadly, like way too common with uh, millennial professors these days. So yeah, it's unbelievable. You guys are, and will like, probably be more so after this pandemic closes down even more departments and uh, closes down full time jobs even worse than than was already going on. Yeah, like one of the statistics I think you you mentioned, I forget which book it was, but you mentioned how tenure track professors are such a uh, smaller percentage than what they were like 30 or 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like 30, 40 years ago, it used to be the case that about 75% of professors were tenured or tenure track. Um, now it's the exact opposite. Only about a quarter are, and they, they're disproportionately boomers and then um, some Gen X, but even it's even Gen X has had a hard time getting tenure. Yeah. So the average professor today, like the average person kind of getting their start in this world today, like me... Um, I have to have a roughly doubled the education that my bosses would have. Um, many of my bosses don't have doctorates and, and have a master's degree. Um, yeah. uh, many of them don't have publications and, uh, and also they're making, um, they're doing less, probably less teaching than me for about three or four times the compensation. So um, yeah. So like the average professor today is just barely above poverty and it's a, it's a bizarre situation and it's, yeah. it's, it's not long-term going to, to work out very well for America to, to yeah. stay on this track. But, but a lot of people have like a very different image of it. So I always like to talk about it, not to complain, but because I think it's important to people that know that that, that affects what goes on in the classroom, that um, it's very serious long-term uh, ramifications for what can and can't be said in the classroom, like in a situation where you don't have any sort of job security and you can simply be not invited back with semester to semester. Um, so it's, it's a very different image, I think, than people who, uh, you know, think of like uh, teaching as, as what you see on TV, where everybody has like a mahogany study with like, you know, oak desk or, you know, or, you know whatever, like that whole like setup. Uh, and the truth is, is that like, we're all like, like half your professors probably live out of their cars or on food stands, right? It's, it's a bizarre situation. Right? Yeah. And think, thinking about, because basically we want to talk about uh, conspiracy theories and misinformation, especially during the time of COVID-19. But you did share an interesting piece on your Twitter the other day, just around public education and how this is kind of an an opportune time. Uh, Who wrote that piece that you shared uh, about how this is a important time to sort of like save the public university? Oh, I think that was one by Corey Robin. There was also another by Adam Kotzko that was very good. Um, But Corey Robin, yeah, just kind of his, his appeal was to, there was a, there was a big editorial that came out from the president of, I believe it was Brown University. And she made this big push to say, you know, we've got to reopen the universities and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, get things back to normal. Um, And, you know, Corey Robin was kind of saying, okay, so like I teach in like the city college in New York and we have like far and away the highest kill count of any of like students and faculty of anywhere in the nation and like everything you're describing just doesn't apply to us, right? He he at one point cited somebody from Yale who recently suggested that we track students with their uh, keyless, 
or yeah, like touchless yeah. entry key card scanners or whatever. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. like, like I have six different keys and like one of them <laughs> is both to my office and the bathroom. Like we don't have like a, like a scanning program. <laughs> like you're, you're talking yeah. about like, and this is, these are class issues and these, which are racially mm-hmm. coded in America as well. Right? right. So a lot of the, the, when we look to the Ivy league for solutions, we're talking about, um, uh, solutions coming from people of the class that go to the Ivy league. Right. Like it, yeah. it's not like you're smarter to be able to go there or teach there or, uh, govern there. Right. Like you're, uh, you're of a different class and, and right. that's going to definitely color what we see as, as the actual problems that we need to address in the midst of this. Yeah. So are you suggesting that Jared Kushner didn't earn his way into Harvard? <laughs> Um, I, well, you know, blocked. you know, I, I always tell my students that like the difference between like an Ivy league and like a community college is that like one is ruled by like a board of real estate agents who have never been in public education. And the other is ruled by a board of hedge fund managers and war criminals who have never been in education. <laughs> and, and that's the primary difference, right? Like it, it's all about class. It's, it's about access to resources. Um, yeah. it's about like the types of networks that you're paying for, or, like through student loans or your parents are paying for you to <laughs> have. So, so, I mean, that, that's the primary difference, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, college math or college philosophy is about the same, like wherever you go, at least in undergrad level. Yeah, well, I'm a, an alumni of, of Baylor University, so we don't know anything about that, uh, mm. that, that fine institution. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so let's get into thinking about uh, conspiracies, COVID-19. Uh, you know, we had an interesting conversation around it the other day. You've written about it in your books. You use kind of Robert Paxton's um, so I just kind of, there's actually more conspiracies since the last time we talked, hashtag Obamagate. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So that, that wasn't even one that existed earlier this week. No, so. Yeah. I, I, that's kind of, I mean, that, that's like a really, but like, you know, I haven't even followed that very closely, but I, I am vaguely aware that he right. kind of talked himself into a corner and lashed out with a, a term and it's very interesting to see right-wing media scramble to come up with something that he could have conceivably meant, right? right. I, mean, I always think, dude, uh, David Ross, who like a, um, a writer for like several publications, a publication or two that have been like closed down in the uh, last year. But David Ross is like one of the, I think, the best... Um, I don't know, narrators for what's going on in Trump's mind. <laughs> he said like, you know, like we... Um, his, his brain is basically like a donut bobbling around in a toilet and everyone always wants to say that he is playing like three-dimensional chess or eight-dimensional chess or whatever the dimensional chess is, right? right. And and he said, you know, the, the, the man's not playing chess. The man is playing hungry, hungry hippo. What you see is exactly what's happening, right? There's no, there's no plan. He Like there's no, there's no like paragraph long attention span, much less multi-day <laughs> attention span, right? So when we kind of think through like, you know, he says Obamagate, how are we supposed to make sense of that? Well, you're not, you're, you're supposed to like, just take that as, as transparent, like stupidity. It's not worth your time. It's not worth yeah. thinking about. Um, but it's, it's dangerous precisely insofar as people do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because you've done a lot of work in writing about Fox news and sort of the history. And that's something mm-hmm. we didn't actually talk about the other day that, I mean, you, you trace a, a line through history that gets us to sort of the, um, the religious right, moral majority, and sort of the rise of Fox News as its own sort of like propaganda reality making machine. And then mm-hmm. there's that there's that internal loop between now our current president and Fox News. You know, it's it's often talked about like which starts first, what the president says, or how Fox News uh, like recycles what the president says, or what right, he's watching right. on Fox News. So, it, I, I wonder if you have thoughts around just the historical. Um, lead up to kind of misinformation and how Fox News plays into the like misinformation of this time of like COVID-19. Yeah. Well, in my book, I, in against, I talk about, uh, in, I, I rely quite a bit on a journalist called, uh, I believe it's Tim Dickinson, who wrote like a really great expose on like how Roger Ailes started off working for Richard Nixon and basically got Nixon to 
take TV seriously, right? And, and yeah. he, it, at some point, Nixon says, you know, it's a shame you have to do gimmicks to get elected president. And Ailes <laughs> said, like, television is not a gimmick. Right. And if you take it as a gimmick, you will lose. And uh, one thing that they pioneered is they, they um, created like kind of like a traveling roadshow, like kind of like basically a kind of a preview of what you would later see with Fox News where all the questions are pre-screens that, you know, there, there would be like audiences in the political shows that Ailes would design um, as political propaganda for a particular campaign. Uh, and there would be like people who would stand up in the audience and ask pre-selected questions, you know, very softball kind of stuff. Right. Um, and so, you know, when uh, Rupert Murdoch is looking to start a counter to CNN in uh, the 90s, in, in 1996, I believe, is when Fox News starts, um, he gets Roger Ailes to do this thing that he's been doing for decades now, kind of stirring up grievances on the right. And uh, I, one of the things that I love most about them is that uh, <laughs> uh, Murdoch's group paid like per per subscriber um for like state for like channels to to like you know that were running fox news in other words um it wasn't a matter of like them trying to sell this product that had a lot of popular buy-in they paid for the buy-in up front they paid for the subscription like the fan base basically and then like hooked people like they had a massive amount of of buy-in just from day one just because like it was it was already bought and paid for Hmm. And then after that, you um, basically forever after that, they, they begin to ascend to like the number one cable news slot. Um, I think in recent years, uh, MSNBC has overtaken them in like one or two years, but like basically they're still the media. Wow. And yeah. one thing I think that is interesting about that um, uh, be- before like moving off this is just to say that when you have like a state propaganda system, that propaganda system is going to oscillate back and forth with its messages depending on who's in power, right? When you have basically a state propaganda system that's privatized, right, that can kind of like be the voice of the state, but it's like... Uh, at least ostensibly <laughs> separate. Uh, it doesn't need to switch when right. uh, when the political power switches, right? So we can keep that same like constant like race baiting, like uh, resentment, like machine going day in and day out. Right, and that kind of plays into something we talked a little bit about last time, which was um, I just dropped my thought. Um, oh, about like agreeing on a common reality. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's something that you write about in your book is like, it's a, it's a miscalculation to think that we're all just kind of trying to come find some common ground together. Yeah, And yeah. that's like an interesting aspect about having such a powerful network like Fox news that is privatized and does have a hold on like a healthy percentage of Americans reality and how they absorb the news. Like we just mm-hmm. know statistically that a good amount of Americans, uh, I forget what it is, but it's, I mean, it's pretty, probably pretty much tracked with like Trump's approval numbers about people that get the majority of their news from Fox. Sure. Um, in maybe you could talk a little bit about just how, um, the idea in your book about, um, the miscalculation of, uh, thinking that we just have to come to the table. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. About, there, there was a serious um, miscalculation on the part of, I think this is something that is particularly egregious with liberals is assuming that we all have a shared desire and simply disagree on the details, or we mm-hmm. have a shared desire and maybe disagree on the details, but it's because we don't have enough information about what the details are. And if we can just get enough facts, we can, uh, I, I, you know, I, I think of like, if you remember, remember like uh, during the flurry of different types of protests that happened at the beginning of the Trump administration in you know, like I don't mean to denigrate the the um uh, the impetus or the, um, the, the sense of emergency at the beginning of the Trump administration, I think oh, clearly that was right on the mark, but like, there was yeah. like a, like a March for science at one point. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was kind of like interesting because, um, it's, it's, uh, I think that there is this kind of, there was this assumption that if everybody could just be, educated, more educated, like infographic into enlightenment, that we would all kind of come to, okay, like, let obviously, this policy kills fewer people than that policy. And, and I want to say, like, what if, what if actually it's wrong? What if, what if it doesn't work that way? What if actually, if you could get people to like concretely realize that one policy is worse than another, a substantial part of the population would say, yes, let's go for the worse one. Um, not only because it helps kill off more people, 
uh, out there, but also because it's worse for us also. Like, what if it's actually kind of, I don't know, um, fun to inflict oneself with options that aren't like the best for like caring for oneself, right? Yeah, like yeah. We, we all kind of intuitively understand that we make all kinds of decisions throughout our lives that are not the best decisions that we could have made for ourselves. But in the political realm, we tend to think, oh, if someone's doing something bad for like the population or believe something bad, it must be because they are either uneducated or because they're just cruel. Um, what, what, if, what if actually they are kind of educated and maybe they are cruel, but maybe actually they kind of don't want the world to be better. Maybe maybe yeah. something just kind of like hair trigger reacts against the idea that I should be paid a living wage or have health care mm-hmm. um, because I just think that like for some reason um, I haven't done enough to deserve that and my pride won't let me admit that the system is rigged against me. Right? Well, yeah, yeah, and that's interesting thinking about like um, you know we had talked a little bit about uh, your book, The Cynic and the Fool, and so. Uh, over the last couple of days, I like pulled it out and was like kind of flipping through that again. And it, maybe you could like kind of talk about those two uh, roles or characters of the cynic and the fool, because I think that kind of gets a, at a good concept that we're just kind of grappling with as a society, which is like how much is like you're saying, uh, you know, Trump not playing three dimen- <laughs> three dimensional chess, um, yeah, yeah. And, and is sort of like a bumbling fool. And then uh, the idea of the cynic as like, you know, kind of like what we think of like Mitch McConnell, you know, as like a cynical politician who knows sure. exactly the, the pain that he's inflicting and like, doesn't really care about it as just a, a crass example. I don't know if you could like kind of suss those out and, and maybe kind of how those get at some of the ideas you're talking about. Yeah, sure. So there's, and, and I'm actually, I'm very glad that I, I finished the cynic and the fool. Um, I actually looked back on my timeline for completing that once it became clear that Trump was going to be the front runner and was actually kind of, I'm glad to realize that I finished the rough draft of that um, literally just one day before Trump declared his candidacy. Um, you know, and, I'm, and I'm actually very glad about that because I think my interpretations of Trump would have been all wrong because I, I too also fell for this idea. Like I had a hard time believing anybody could be that stupid. I just, I just thought that it was like part of a gimmick to like, you know, attract certain people that he saw as rubes. Like, so I, I kind of viewed him as, as uh, not like, intelligent but like but is it at least like more cynical and manipulative and capable than I think he's ultimately shown to be. But there is still this, yeah. like, so the, the way that uh, Jacques Lacan is the psychoanalyst that I draw a lot of my um, um, work on, the way that he frames it in one of his seminars is that uh, on the left, you also, you often, and this kind of works for like liberals in the center as well, uh, you often have this figure who is supposed to be a true believer, like a purist. And like whatever they say, whether or not it can be done, they're supposed to at least like genuinely believe it. But on the right, you know, uh, Lacan says at one point, you know, when you ask like a, like a right-wing politician, if they actually believe all the nonsense that they're saying, you know, what do they say if the cameras are away? don't insult my intelligence. Like I'm not that, I'm not that stupid. Like, of course I'm doing what I'm paid to do. Right. And and that's, and that's our our problem is that we have a really hard time kind of admitting that maybe someone is actually doing exactly what they're paid to do. Maybe it's right there on the surface. Right. So um, Donald Trump is, is one of the stupidest people in the world. Right. But like Mitch McConnell, like knows what he's doing. Right. Mitch McConnell uh, just purely through like, just to take two examples, just his work on behalf of the tobacco lobby and the healthcare industry. Uh, it is probably fair to say that Mitch McConnell has indirectly through policy killed more Americans than anybody ever, right? No, no terrorist, no foreign leader has ever killed people, uh, killed Americans on the scale that Mitch McConnell has, right? So, but he, but he's not an idiot, right? Like he might not be that smart, but like he knows what he's doing. He's a very savvy character right now. He's called the Senate back into session, not to deal with the coronavirus, but to appoint conservative judges, right? Who who, like, you know, so such that the courts are lost, right? So so, so that's how I see like these figures of the cynic and the fool, the, um, you know, when somebody tells you something that cannot possibly be true it is it is worth asking is this person uh, a fool who genuinely believes himself or a cynic who knows exactly what the truth is and is doing something else right and it's something yeah. that we have to negotiate all of the time uh, when somebody um, insults our intelligence or says something that can't be true 
Yeah. And so I, I use that in the book to kind of get at this question of like, how do conspiracy theories work? And um, when somebody believes in a conspiratorial idea, is that, is that foolish or is that cynical? What's going on there? Yeah. I wonder if you could talk like a little bit, you, you referenced, uh, you know, the, the work of, of Robert Paxson, who writes a lot on uh, fascism, I think, mm-hmm. uh, as a scholar, um, in just like the way he breaks down um, conspiratorial thinking. Oh, I think maybe, uh, maybe you mean uh, Brian Keeley? In that case, the, in the, well, Robert yeah. Paxton is a, is like a like a father of American fascism studies. He's an excellent resource on fascism, and I use him a lot in um, against. Um, right. Maybe that's him. But it, uh, yeah, Brian Keeley yeah. is is who I draw from on conspiracy theories. So um, so we can come back to Paxton if if you want. But Probably. Paxton, yeah. Well, Pax, well, Paxton, um, Paxton has like this very. Um, clear, well, I don't know, like which direction would be better to take the, um, the... well, all right, let's take this, uh, like maybe let's go fascism first. <laughs> fascism okay. always comes first. Uh, just since we're talking about like Fox news, just because, um, I do think it's an interesting thing to kind of muse on a little bit with like, uh, how much of an outside role Fox news has even thinking about like the cynic and the fool, because mm-hmm. um, like e- the question goes for Fox news hosts, right? Like how much is Tucker Carlson sort of uh, peddling rumors or misinformation around like hydroxychloroquine, you know, like that right. just, or, you know, name any sort of hosts um, on Fox where they start just like pet and you're like, what, why are they talking so much and giving so much uh, time and space to, you know, a uh, unproven drug. Um, and then maybe the sort of like what you're processing around the proclivities for that sort of p- potentially cynical behavior. Like it's always a mix, um, I think in, in some ways, but, um, sure. you know, kind of like what you're thinking about of like how you write about, um, uh, like, I think it's Paxton stuff. If I'm getting this right. I don't need, yeah. Clearly, I was wrong. No, sure. Yeah, sure. Um, it, yeah, is, I mean, it's, you know, it's definitely pertinent. Like where he talks about like all um, like the sort of like idea that we're always sort of like democracies are sort of like pre-fascist. Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. All, all Western democracies are, are like in stage one pre-fascism, right? He kind of says, you know, there's a there's a number of stages, right? Like you, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, so like first, like the, like there's a, there's kind of like a pre-fascism that exists in democracies. But one thing that's important that I think I have to remind my students often is that fascism isn't just something that happens in uh, Germany and Italy and it, it doesn't have an exact definition, but I also, I think I'm very skeptical of this idea that you could never call anything fascism unless it was Germany or Italy. I, I think that's also very dangerous and kind of ignores a number of common traits that we see. Um, and in fact, we saw in most Western democracies, at least in some form, uh, there was literally like mass Nazi, like full swastika, like regalia, uh, like a march in uh, Madison Square Garden in New York, uh, like in the lead up to World War II. Right? Like we had our own uh, fascist movement and it was very connected in with this movement called America First, which has kind of been uh, like a resurgent uh, mantra, at least during the Trump administration, like America First was kind of like a um, uh, either outright Nazi, like, um, like sympathizers, or at least like sympathetic, like fellow travelers, right? Um, But anyways, so Paxton talks about how, um, you know, first, like a movement has to be created, then second, like a movement has to root itself in a given political system, the fascisms that were uh, successful did so within democracies, right? Like they they essentially took advantage of some sort of division and uh, like a, a small movement rooted itself in a larger political apparatus or formed affiliations like so like with the with the nazis it was like you know they they had like a certain small amount of the election and there was a success of like succession of snap elections that happens like all within like one year very quickly and then eventually the conservatives uh kind of said all right these nazis are kind of like idiots but like we'll work with them because otherwise the the liberals or the socialists or the communists are going to take too much uh, away from us in the 
uh, in the Reichstag. So uh, thirdly, like a movement seizes power and then fourth, like a movement exercises that power. And then finally, the movement either has to keep radicalizing or it will die out, right? Like, so there's, you can't, you can't hold it in stasis. And then, and then Paxton talks about a number of, of um, factors that are, that seem pretty common, things like an overwhelming sense of crisis, which maybe is worth thinking about right now. Uh, you know, like uh, the primacy of the group, not the outsiders, uh, dread of the group's decline. We can think of that clearly with white evangelicals or, or white men in particular, like this dread yeah. of decline of power, right? Uh, the need for like closer integration of a pure community, uh, hierarchies, uh, authority of uh, leadership figures who are always male, superior of the leader's instincts over abstract and universal reason, which I think is particularly interesting to think about now, like the, the import of the leader's instincts, uh, instincts over reason or abstraction, right? So, so you can't reason with it because like you're reasoning against instincts and like obviously your reason is wrong if you're going against good instincts, right? Um, uh, you know, beauty of violence, efficacy of the will, uh, devotion to the group success. These types of things are what Paxton sees. And then I'm also very interested in a, a figure who was working uh, in the 30s, uh, Robert Reich, who, or, sorry, not Robert, I'm mixing my figures <laughs> now, Wil- Wilhelm Reich, uh, yeah. who talked about how fascism kind of takes fascism is what he said you get when you have a severely repressed society um, with basically lower middle class values and you put that in a in a kind of uh, economic crisis in a highly mechanized society right and and i think that that particular combination is very interesting because um there's that idea of like high repression like of like the father's authority, sexual repression. Those are the, basically the two things that he means right, when he's yeah. talking about repression is the father's authority and sexual repression in the home. Um, and you combine that with lower middle class values. And to me, that sounds a lot like white evangelicalism in the US. Right? It, it makes a lot of sense why people who have been told their entire lives that you're never supposed to get what you want and you're supposed to obey and follow. Uh, and also you're part of the in group and it's your purity. And it's like all of these things, these are all very fascist desires. They don't have to fascism of course right. but they are pretty much priming the pump for it yeah and I, th- I think you've said it before somewhere but like they they share affinities which is something that i think is a really interesting it's an interesting connection that yeah can, yeah yeah you you can have you can have different groups that like have radically different goals like capitalism and evangelicalism and they both don't care about the future because one doesn't think it exists and one like there's no profit motive to think about the future other than a few courses ahead right yeah. uh, so but they have very different goals um probably the average capitalist on wall street doesn't particularly care whether jesus returns next century or not he just doesn't he doesn't he can't he doesn't care either way right he's not going to be here for he's going to be dead so um but they can have affinities right like uh so it doesn't matter if jesus comes here or not that doesn't like our goal doesn't matter um but the affinity of like not caring a damn about the future uh resonates quite a bit so so we find that all the time right in 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 uh, classic fascist literature you have the characters of not just the uh, ideological committed mob fascist, but you also have the fellow travelers who justify it, who kind of say, aren't you way too worried about this thing that can't get that bad or something like the, the people who are justifying things without going so far as to actually join the mob violence. Those are the fellow travelers and, and they can also have different goals, but the same affinities that can resonate together. I think that's a question that I've gotten a lot from people uh, over the last couple of months is how um, people are seeing their evangelical friends sort of like quickly adopt conspiracy theories, but also Mm -hmm. people that don't have any religious affiliation that they also might be friends or family uh, members with also adopt the the same conspiracy theories. And it's kind of like, sure, but they're adopting them for different reasons uh, but they're kind of coming to a similar conclusion about, about mm-hmm. these issues, whether that's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you have any. Yeah, absolutely. So in, so in, in Keeley's work, one of the things that, uh, is, is characteristic of conspiracy theories is the, uh, presence of errant data that can be interpreted in kind of, um, um, I don't know, like a very creative, 
you know, recombination of ways. So uh, one, so when I, you know, when I think uh, one, one conspiracy theory that I've seen attached to from multiple different angles is the ID 2020, this idea that Bill Gates is using a coronavirus vaccine that will be manufactured in like, like factories that he's retrofitting. And, and this will have a microchip in it that will track you or something like that. It's very loosely, I think, based on some sort of offhand comment he made years ago about like the idea that you could use some sort of trace for something. It was, it was just like a completely like offhand thing. It was not like a, like a program. Um, but conspiracy theories latched onto this with the idea uh, and it kind of, it mixes across several things, right? So if you think that Bill Gates is trying to use a vaccine to implant you with microchips, um, if you're like, um, let's say just like a straight up Nazi anti-Semite, do you hear that? And you think like global, lists like you know seeding power and like big like massive capital conspiracies and stuff like that right. and you can go the full anti-semitic route if you're an evangelical you can like it's very clear you immediately go to mark of the beast language right i'm being stamped with a microchip i mean this is like coming out of the same crowd that um you know not so long ago was very much against barcodes on account of those could be used to be the mark of the beast right yeah. so so microchips are kind of seed like priming that um uh, they're primed to to go in multiple different vectors. Um, if you were just, I don't know, like some sort of like self-styled libertarian type character. Also, you can have like a problem with a billionaire making decisions for you. Um, I certainly have a problem with a billionaire making decisions for me, right? But because I don't have the particular affiliations or affinities that would be needed for me to latch on to that conspiracy, like it's not that attractive to me. So yeah, so conspiracies can kind of work with, again, like different, ideas of how the future looks, but there can be enough affinities that they can share. So, right, so the anti-Semite and the evangelical and the anti-vaxxer, right? Like the, um, the like skepticism of the mark of the beast can like sort of share an affinity with the skepticism about um, in, in, like uh, vaccines on account of like the measles vaccine causing autism or something like that, right? Like these, these can share and proliferate. And the question to me is always at what point does something stop being uh, hilariously dumb uh, in start being uh, grotesquely dangerous, right? right. With the example I was using class is um, I don't really understand why flat earthers are a growing thing, and I can never quite tell if that's a joke or not, um, but it seems like there's at least some people that seem sincerely attracted to this, but it's probably, it doesn't really affect anything, right? Yeah. Um, uh, same with like uh, creationism, right? Like the idea that scientists are all lying, um, you know, about like how like evolution works and like so medicine is a farce. Well, okay, you probably don't believe like that. You probably don't go that far, right? Or like uh, you know the biologists who have like carbon dated things. Uh, you know, maybe radioactive isotopes don't actually break down at like a, a, a given rates that we can predict and understand. And in that case, it wouldn't shouldn't be surprising if all the nuclear bombs in the world exploded on any given day if, if, if radioactive isotopes are not stable, right? But probably if you're a creationist, you're not going that far, right? You're only kind of yeah, half yeah. believing something because it makes you feel better. It gives contours to how you feel. And the problem becomes like it, at one point is a is a conspiracy more like flat eartherism and at what point is it uh, anti-vaxxer right because one of those probably doesn't have any effect on your day-to-day life right it doesn't really matter if i believe there's this flat around uh, but the other could cause me to get my child killed right so so that that to me is always the question is is what kind of conspiracy are we talking about and even if it is a very dumb conspiracy can it get people hurt i think with these covid conspiracies definitely can, right? Uh, there's, you know, there's a certain range of targets for like the idea that it was created in a Chinese lab, right? Like that endangers people. Uh, the idea that the vaccine itself will be dangerous is going to danger uh, a hell of a lot more people, at least here in America, right? right. That would not otherwise be in danger. Um, so there we go, right? Yeah. And it, and that makes me like, because that's something that we had kind of talked about before, like where does sort of a innocent conspiracy theory then mm-hmm. sort of go over into uh something that is actually really harmful for everybody around us and like public life and there was something that uh i think it was uh the trump administration had like uh communicated that they needed the cdc to uh reevaluate tell states to reevaluate the numbers of coronavirus death coronavirus mm-hmm. coronavirus death um 
in order to uh, keep the numbers as low as possible. And that's something that we talked about before, which is, um, you know, how, how there's like several conspiracy theories out there that, you know, hotels are getting paid or hotels, uh, hospitals are getting paid to, uh, to like increase the death rates because they're getting, um, they're getting financial benefit from Mm -hmm. increasing the number of total deaths. Then, right. Which I mean, and that's a great example of like kind of errant data, which I, I should probably like talk right. about like what Keeley actually kind of says conspiracy theories are or something. But, yeah. you know, uh, the the idea that hospitals are getting paid extra by Medicare, if, you know, $13,000 for diagnosing a case, uh, $39,000 for a ventilator, that that's a, that's articulated in this uh, wildly popular pandemic documentary that has been growing in popularity in the last mm-hmm. week. And um, that's the type of thing where you're like, I don't know if that's true or not. Like, I, I, I honestly have no idea. Uh, what I can definitely say is I sure hope that's true. I sure hope that hospitals that are diagnosing this are getting X resources uh, to help combat it, right? But when you just put it out in a documentary, oh, the hospitals are getting extra money. It sounds like you're saying that the hospitals are, you know, inflating numbers intentionally because hospitals are just grifters who are trying to make a buck off of you, right? So that's quite concerning. Yeah, yeah, but can I can I uh, spell out like how what uh, Keeley's five characteristics real quick? Yeah, yeah, go yeah, back go. to sorry. I know it kind of cut you off, and I want to come back to whatever yeah. you were saying, like that I in the midst. But um, so Keeley is, and this is from an article called "Of Conspiracy Theories." If anyone wants to look it up on JSTOR or whatnot, um, uh, Keeley was somebody who I once saw give a talk, and he said that uh, basically a conspiracy is the human mind's inability to cope with the idea that some Sometimes shit happens, right? right. And, and I've thought about that a lot recently, this idea that sometimes shit happens. Right. Um, and this is not just a conservative thing, right? Like this is this is like, what is the election of Donald Trump? That like, it's a lot of shit happening. Yeah. And like the um, liberal like desire was to think, oh, well, like this must be like part of some vast like Russian conspiracy. And then like the Mueller report comes out and it says like, okay, like there was some like, effort to help, but it basically amounted to them tweeting at you, right? Like it, it probably, it, like it, it wasn't some like vast, like it was just like shit happens and it can be chaotic and awful. Um, and, and like our mind revolts against the idea that just random awfulness can just happen with no course. It's almost more happy if uh, the awful thing is done intentionally. Like if somebody actually is in control and they're malicious and want to hurt you, that's almost mm-hmm. in some ways better than just shit happens, right? Um, Keeley, though, yeah, in Keeley's article, he says, you know, conspiracies basically, they always claim first, uh, so five items here. First, they always claim the official narrative is false. Secondly, the conspiracy theorist always assumes the real intentions are nefarious, like nobody plans global good, it's always evil. Um, uh, third, conspiracies tie together unrelated events. Uh, one example of that is like when Timothy McVeigh bombs the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, city building, some people said, okay, well, this is like, the one-year anniversary of, of the Branch Davidian, uh, Davidian siege in Waco, which yeah. seems, which from what I understand is probably the correct way to interpret what happened. Um, or I, I think that there is connection, if I'm not mistaken. I'm, it's been a while since I've looked into I'm this. I'm from Waco, but, but I don't have anything to say. So. Oh, okay. 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 I, I'm not much into conspiracy theories myself. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes I get the details and yeah, it's not because I'm, I'm buying it. I just don't know. I don't care. Yeah. I think that, um, yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting. Like, yeah, but like, but maybe we should have said that, like neither of us are conspiracy. Yeah. Not, not too much people, but, but uh, I do think that like both of us, like clearly you've written about this in your books, but like both of us are fascinated in the structures around like why conspiracy theories develop and how that sort of like functions in society. So maybe that's sure. And, and like how they're useful, like you have to right. understand them, like in the same way that you have to understand lots of ideas that you don't agree with. Right. right. Um, but yeah, but they, but they tie together unrelated events, right? That's the, that's Keeley's third sort of pillar of what a conspiracy theory is. Yeah. And in like a lot of people looked at when, um, when the Oklahoma city building was bombed, it was also one month after a Japanese subway had a sarin gas attack, uh, deployed. And there was a separate conspiracy theory that said the CIA had planted sarin gas in the Japanese subway. So maybe the Japanese were getting back at the CIA by bombing Oklahoma City or something like that. Right. So, so unrelated events, you can find that all over the place with like 9-11 truthers or whatever. And that's even like connected um, to uh, to what I've heard with like, oh, okay, so there's the, in Wuhan, there's this lab that's in proximity to where mm-hmm. these bats live that have these viruses. It's like, 
there's like these two different things that exist and they're mm-hmm. like ambiguously connected, you know, they don't, sure. they yeah. might not have any correlation at all, but it's like, it's just enough to sort of give this like vague connection. Right. Like it, it's not on the surface of it. Like, absolutely insane right it, i mean it doesn't feel intuitively like beyond the realm of possibility it's just that it's it's loosely connected events in the same way that like when i'm watching a movie or reading a book and i'm trying to guess where the plot goes i can have a range of ideas about how that plot finishes that aren't necessarily absurd even if all of them objectively end up being false right and sometimes i think of conspiracies that way right like you can you can kind of see contours and ways that things could fit together and that, that doesn't make it completely unreasonable necessarily sometimes maybe so but not necessarily but you know at the end of the day still like you were objectively wrong about your reality right so so unrelated events um and then just the the fourth and fifth are like the actors are always able to keep their uh their organization their plot a well-guarded secret even if they're very public figures you definitely see this um with uh dr fauci right like he's part of this big plot um everybody knows it but somehow nobody does right uh and and finally the the errant data right like so um you know the uh keely's explain example of that is when you um you know when uh timothy mcveigh was caught for the oklahoma city bombing um when he when his name and sketch was released to the public he was actually already in jail because uh, in his getaway car he had not like affixed a proper license plate so a state trooper stops him he informs the state trooper that he has a gun but doesn't have a license for it the state trooper books him for not having like the the license for either the gun or the car i can't remember which and he's sitting in jail when they like release his name to the public Right. So if you're a conspiracy theorist, you think, okay, this feels like errant data. Like this is kind of random that you have this massive manhunt for a terrorist and then actually you've just conveniently caught him on the stupidest thing possible. Right. Like, you know, so, so that's, that's the way that these work. Um, so again, just to, um, to pull these back together uh the official narrative is false first second the conspiracy always assumes the real intentions are nefarious third they tie together unrelated events fourth they're always a well-guarded secret even if the actors are very public and then finally there's just lots of errant data that you can kind of tie together into a narrative so so that's kind of how keely talks about it and he kind of says you know um shit happens and it's terrifying to think about and it's it's also it's even more difficult for us to wrap our minds around this when we're just being lied to constantly from from the white house right yeah that that's interesting because i want to kind of drill down into the the anxiety around um the pandemic and, and the fact that shit happens and we just have a really hard time as humans grappling with that fundamental reality. So, mm-hmm. you know, whether you go to sort of like the magical thinking or, um, you know, like we've talked about before, you know, you kind of, um, you either externalize it onto Bill Gates or, you know, a cabal of nefarious intent, or you spiritualize it. Cause that's the thing that I've seen some of my like evangelical friends do, which is like, oh, this reminds us that there's a spiritual warfare going on invisibly around us. And so there might not be a sort of like material, you know, cabal of, you know, interests doing the mm-hmm. But it's like right, realm of it. and, and that's that's like a like an eject button from critical thinking, right? But it makes you feel good, right? <laughs> it, it makes you feel yeah. like, oh yeah, again, that's the retreat from like the that's the retreat to thinking that somebody's in control, right? Like even if okay, like I, I give up trying to figure it out, but like ultimately I don't care because somebody's got it under control, yeah. uh, and his name is Jesus, right? So <laughs> yeah, amen, brother. Well, it's like it's, it's that it's like, I've seen, I've seen a little bit of that, like, uh, Oh, well, we know, we know where the story ends, Tad. We know that God wins in the end. Mm-hmm. There's this sort of apocalyptic, um, in times kind of like, Oh, this is going to end well for, for us. Cause like we're on the, the right side and the chosenness, or there's kind of like the, I don't know, like a certain type of evangelical that seems to, enjoy the dark side of like spirituality where it's like the warfare aspect where it's like, Ooh, Satan is like, I'm enjoying that Satan is having his like day, you know, it's like, you're like, this is kind of weird. You've gone really like, yeah. Right. 
really got yeah you find that you find that a lot in like like big like into prophecy types right there there's some sort of enjoyment in the idea that things are getting worse and like more destructive or something like that and i think that that's one of those places like when people tell you that you you should listen to what they're telling you right um and then not try to take it overly vaguely right they're they're telling you something about the enjoyment of of suffering or what they believe is the destruction of most life on earth and surely the damning of most life after that um i also i that's yeah, well, I mean, one, one thing that I think of, though, like when somebody gets excited about, you know, signs of the end, for example, like yeah. things like earthquakes or plagues or something like that, that are basically everywhere all of the time. And and, and it just happens to be a particularly bad version of, of one of those, those catastrophes that happens all the time. When somebody can uh, sublimate that into a type of spiritual enjoyment, the thing that they're distancing themselves like maybe without realizing it is like what it's the fact that this pandemic is killing uh, black and brown people in ways that it's not killing white people because we live in a racist society, right? Like there is no register for like how God has a plan for that. Right. Um, Or there, um, I think a lot recently about how um, the psychoanalyst Lacan uh, says at one point that a hero is somebody that you can kill with impunity. And I think of that a lot when we talk about like our essential workers being heroes and, and they push back and say, no, 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 not an essential, like I'm not a hero, right? I'm doing a job because I have to, and you don't care if I live or die. And I, I think that there's, there's definitely like the way that people find like a type of beauty in the, like the destruction going on is yeah. um, not just like an evidence of kind of like a uh, decadent culture and decline and like the end of American empire and like, the death drive of a society right. but it's also it's also like a, a way to not have to think about the hero that you were trying to kill with impunity uh the the person who comes from a class that you don't interact with except when you're screaming at or ordering around yeah yeah that's that's fascinating to think about like the anxiety around that then manifesting itself in sort of um venerating the essential worker uh, because you can't deal with your own anxiety around sort of the mistreatment of people that are just doing their jobs and sort of capitalism mistreating them, um, that then yeah. you have to like venerate them as heroes or martyrs for yourself. Yeah. 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 And another thing that like, uh, Lacan said about heroes is like, like heroes in, in fiction are always these characters who have basically all of the same, um, desires or sometimes like, uh, you know, personal vices or something like that, like a normal person. Uh, but when they want something, it's somehow pure, right? Like they're, they're not, they're not trying to pull one over on you and just, you know, take power for themselves. That's the bad guy. Like the hero is the one who desires things, but their desires are perfectly pure. And I think that there's, there's an aspect of the way that we're treating essential workers in that way, where we're trying to almost kind of fetishize the purity of their desire of like staying on the job and doing a dangerous thing so that so that we can still have groceries right when uh no actually like they uh they're trapped in like a like a horrifically abusive system that says you will either stay on here or you will um you will starve and die because you don't have resources and if you stay here and die you can be replaced afterwards right Right. and there's nothing there's nothing beautiful or heroic or pure about that Uh, precisely in as much as like their desires are the same as yours and mine uh and and so and i i'm not doing an essential job out in the world right now uh, because i come like i i've positioned myself in such a way that i do not have to do that but it's not because i'm a better person or more like right like it's also i'm not worse either right like there's a serious problem with fetishizing the essential worker in this way because what we're ultimately saying is that they are killable right <laughs> uh, you know like uh, yeah, it's a very very yeah. sad thing i did like have a thought yeah. that maybe um it one is, thing that we talked about yeah. uh, uh last time that uh, sorry did you have something to say there no yeah go ahead oh well no i was thinking we talked briefly about like last time like the inability on top of like to accept shit happens we have like right. this inability to think about the sheer amount of deception that goes into everything from like the daily white house briefing to mm-hmm. uh you know a, 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 a pandemic or like some of these other documentaries that are talking about these various conspiracy theories around mm-hmm. uh, the covid19 and 
Uh, I use an example. I remember I think back to this regularly because I don't actually watch like TV news ever. So I, I don't actually watch Chris Hayes' uh, show on MSNBC, but I listen to his podcast yeah. from time to time. And right. he used this example once when he, and this was very much, this was way before the pandemic, but he was talking about like just the sheer inability of ourselves to cope with just lie after lie after lie. And he uses the example of like, if I lied to my wife, it would be a very big deal, right? If she if she caught me in a lie, it would it would be um, like I would feel crushed and ashamed of myself. She would feel very hurt, but like th- like even further, there would be almost like on her part. The interesting thing is that there would probably be something like embarrassment for me, right? The the embarrassment that I had chosen to do something so hurtful to our relationship. So, um, in, in, like that's how that's how big and catastrophic a lie feels, like in a situation where you trust, right? And and that's that's what we do usually is we we surround ourselves with people that we uh, vaguely like have a, a reasonable expectation of trust with, right? Um, but in situations like this, like I don't I don't know the person in a pandemic documentary. I just know that they call themselves a doctor. So like, who am I? How do I how do I adjudicate those credentials without like right. having access to like the types of research skills that I might have to like, you know, or like with the, uh, the president, right? Like I don't feel disappointed or embarrassed when he lies. I feel on the contrary, embarrassed if I agree with him and I think, yeah. oh, okay, you might've said something that was partly true there, yeah. right? Like, so I feel, so, so we just don't have a register. We, we, we are not equipped uh, to deal with like a constant stream of, a, of just like, uh, you know, gaslighting abuse, right? So, like, right. How, how do you have a society that works together when, at most, the type of propaganda you're having spewed at you gives you comfort because it gives shape to how you already feel, and that's about it. But it doesn't right. actually communicate anything good. Yeah, and that's kind of the interesting thing about um, you know the the Reich comment that you met that you mentioned earlier is like it's a mechanistic worldview, and that goes back into the the media or Fox News or just uh, the daily press briefings. You know, back when Trump used to do them, I don't know if he does them every day anymore, but uh, you know, it's like where he goes out and he just lies. You can't you can't possibly fact check at the level. At, you know, which he's like continuing to like gaslight the American people. So, um, that is just a fascinating point. Um, I'm curious, like the, what around the anxiety of, um, just death plays into all of this. Um, like when it comes to conspiracy theories and people's mm-hmm. anxiety that, you know, it's just sort of plainly being fearful of death and the ways in which, people like, um, like repress or kind of like deal with that kind of anxiety. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I don't know that I have a really good answer to that. (laughs) Uh, I mean, where my mind goes is how I personally react right now, which is like some days I can function and other days I, I feel like I can't concentrate on anything. Um, I think quite a bit about how, uh, man, it's kind of nuts that we're like one, like one third of 1% of the population has gotten sick so far. And I don't really feel like I know if we get up to 1% of the population getting sick or if basically everybody gets sick. Right. And, and it's that, and that's like the, the gap is that, uh, it just, it feels impossible to know. And like, I, you know, I have some days where like, I'm getting back into running and exercising and taking like actual care of myself. Right. But for a while, like there is a real um, sharp temptation that still creeps in of like, you know, what does this matter? Because like, perhaps I'm dead in a month, right. You know, or perhaps my parents are dead or like, you know, someone else that I, you know, like, and I think that that's like a, an anxiety that we all feel, but we don't really have a register for, right? Yeah. Uh, nothing like this has happened before where uh, we probably all know someone who's going to die, but maybe we don't all know, or maybe we all know 10 people who are going to die. Um, uh, you know, and, and that idea of like, that I know gets used as an example too much, but like the idea that you may have like seen or interacted with or hugged some like loved one for the last time is, is a completely open question. And yeah, it, it feels like absolutely horrific, right? Like, I mean, one of the ways that like psychoanalysts talk about anxiety is that like, it's, um, um, it's, it's, it's a question about like what you should be doing, right. Or like, what does someone else want? What do I want? Like it on one hand and, um, uh, even more so I remember, 
two quotes from psychoanalysts that I know like personally here in Denver um, have stuck out a lot to me. One is that like one said, you know, anxiety is never a false alarm, right? Like even if the threat yeah. is imaginary, the anxiety is real um, and, yeah. it, and it can ruin you. Um, and the other said, you know, um, basically what, what, uh, reality doesn't matter. What matters is what the subject says about reality. And, uh, like in terms of what we do or how we respond to something, right. Yeah, There's a sense in which we're responding to ghosts all day long, right. Where like things cannot exist and we're still responding to them. Uh, we, and like even in normal times. And so, so right now, like, how do you respond to something like this? Um, it, it might make you feel better to think that there is a global conspiracy trying to hunt you down and kill you because then at least there's a bad guy that you can right. kind of latch on to. And it's not that like, oh, I breathed near somebody, so now I will die, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, one of those actually could, I, it makes sense to me how the conspiracy theory would feel better because it's a protest yeah. against shit happening. Yeah, because I think that's a, uh, like, there's a couple of places that um, I want to get to to close. And uh, the podcast is obviously going to be called Shit Happens because <laughs> Very good. it's on a better day. Uh, so like, maybe we'll close with, final thoughts on shit happens. Uh, but there's something that, uh, I remember from our first conversation that I, I want to at least touch on where, um, you'd kind of said something along the lines of, um, we shouldn't think of, um, those kinds of people as dupes. Um, and I kind of want to get your thoughts on that. If, if you can, if you're like, remember kind of like what we were talking about, um, you know, earlier, which was like, there's a, a type of person that we just sort of like maybe assume that's uh, a dupe and mm -hmm. to kind of like a warning against that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, th I think that's kind of one of the dangers of our moment. And, and I don't say this like the, I, I, I detest liberals almost as much as I, I detest like the conservative position on all of this. Right. So, but, but I also, I don't want to like, I, I don't want to position myself as like a centrist in between the, the two. Like I'm, I'm not at all. Like I'm um, like, I, I think that the, the two types of messages we're getting on all of this is uh, there, there are significant gradations in difference of like how catastrophic these messages that we're hearing are. Um, for example, like on the, on, on the, the liberal centrist, like version of the world that we're hearing, like from our leaders, right now is that like the problem is that we have just dumb leadership um, and we like need good leadership and it like but it, but it feels kind of empty beyond that much of the time right like sometimes you'll see a proposal that we give more money out to people and it's coming from politicians who you know are not going to fight for that they're going to give up on it like and, and it's clearly just kind of like a performance or something like yeah. that um, so like so I well I don't want to like criticize both sides equally in, in effect, because I kind of see them as, as two different, like one's the center right party and one's a far right party. I do, I do, I do want to kind of say that one well, of the things that we're Morning being, Joe is not a leftist public. <laughs> I, I, I'm saying we have like three left of center politicians <laughs> that are elected in America. Um, but, uh, you know, which bothers me as a leftist here, but, but, um, yeah. but, but I will say that what I, what I think we're being asked to do is to see the other side as just dupes, right? Like these idiots going to restaurants, um, like so that they can die for the privilege of having like uh, the, the the finger looking good Applebee's like chicken burger with bacon or something like that, like whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. know, but like but but like the 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 idea that somebody would die for that because they're just an idiot who doesn't understand how dangerous it is. Um, maybe actually that's not how it works. Maybe actually they're telling you something um, very serious that we need to listen to about their values, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when we kind of know that we could reorganize ourselves society such we basically take care of people and keep the cash flows going um, and get the goods and services out as we need, but we're not going to because it would be very catastrophic for a certain class of people in power. Um, that also is something maybe worth listening to when we're considering like whether or not our good centrist liberal like leaders have necessarily the best interest. Uh, people who have also never like bagged a grocery and, and have not interacted with an essential worker except to yell at them. Um, I, I think that that's something we need to think about because it's this idea of the dupe comes from one of Lacan's seminars where he kind of says, you know, um, to, to call someone a dupe is to fall for it. Right. To um, like when, when you, when you think that somebody's simply an idiot, a lot of times what, what you're doing is you're, um, you're misinterpreting their desire. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a similar vein, he once said that what what is what what frustrates you about someone who's bullshitting is you can't figure out what they want, like what what their desire is, right? <laughs> like you, you know you're being lied to, but you can't yeah. figure out what they're actually trying to do. So so yeah, yeah. so to call someone a dupe is to refuse to see it as as bullshit and, and to yeah. like fully believe their own bullshit, right? Yeah. Um, th- does that make sense, right? Like so, I mean, it's yeah. this idea that like it's kind of back to the cynic and the fool thing, right? Like right. what is someone Absolutely. wanting? What is what is someone doing with their desire what do they ultimately want um and to simply say that like these idiots like with their ar-15s and like not wearing you know like a mask to socially distance you know to open up applebee's like um maybe they're telling you something about like who they think should live or die so that they can have applebee's right right? uh you know like that that might actually be what they're doing and you're kind of the idiot for thinking that they just don't know like they haven't heard of the pandemic or something right right Yeah, yeah yeah Right. I think of that. So one thing is like, just to make fun of myself in closing here, since that's quite, yeah. um, like quite brutal what I'm saying, but like, I think of that often when I am passing somebody like on my rare trips out to do like some essential like thing, like get groceries or something. Um, and sometimes somebody is not wearing a mask and passes by, pass by like very close to me. And I, for a second, I feel that flash of anger and I think, I need to scream at that person. Haven't you heard that there's a pandemic? And I'd like take a bit of joy thinking about that for a second. But then also I kind of think, what a dumb thing that I'm pretending like they haven't heard that there's a pandemic. (laughs) But like I I feel morally superior pretending like they haven't for a second when when actually perhaps they just don't care, right? Like it's just not that big a deal, right? And and that's, that's kind of the scarier thing. Yeah, and I think we're all uh, like a, a complete mix of those contradictions where we're all anxious. Like if, if you're walking down the street and you are wearing masks or whatever, like we feel that anxiety of needing to cross over to the other side of the road, or we feel that anger or like that sort of sense of sort of self-righteousness. Like even that's just like kind of innate in who we are, like no matter mm-hmm. what side of the political spectrum that you're on, uh, like we feel self-righteous um, like I'm sure if you're on the conservative end or if you're on the like super leftist end, you're like, I have the right perspective and I have the righteous anger at those people that I see from the comfort of my own couch, which is very comfortable, um, that are, you know, like doing push-ups or, you know, going into TJ Maxx, like you feel good. Like that's a way to, I think, kind of like almost off put that anxiety, which is like, whew, I'm right. And at least I know that I'm on the right side of this thing. Mm-hmm from the comfort of mind couch or whatever. So, um, and I want to close with just the shit happens because you, I think really eloquently ended our last conversation with just kind of like a message of, um, how to sort of like cope in a, in a time like this as best as we can with all the things that are going on with our, typical, typical, like inability to just kind of grapple with the fact that sometimes things happen. I'd mentioned, you know, my mom had got cancer last year and mm-hmm. you, you even feel those impulses to try to like create or make meaning out of tragedy or something that mm-hmm. is like inexplicable that happens. Um, so maybe I thought it would be good if you could just like close with some thoughts on like how we can, um, sort of, as best as possible as humans sort of adopt a more, um, open-handed shit happens, um, approach to life. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to think about, right? Because, um, like on the one hand, I'm not as at risk as certain other people are, right? Like, and, and again, right. like there's all sorts of like class and racial coding that goes into like what level of danger I'm I'm in, right? So, so to even talk about like the the who is in danger and how can we think of it uh, presents like to me like initially this problem of like well who is the we that that I'm talking about, right? Because like I'm yeah. fairly okay, but like I I'm like finishing up a semester with a lot of students that are out in the world and and uh, and some of them are probably going to get sick um and and i might lose some of them right so so like that's it's a hard thing to kind of think about but i, I remember that we talked a little bit about um how sometimes i i think back to the i reread the book of job pretty early on just kind of thinking through like what kind of messages um 
uh, you get in that. And it, it's actually pretty rare for me to read the Bible anymore, but, uh, but I do, I do like that book. And, uh, you know, like the story is that like all this catastrophically terrible stuff happens to a guy. Uh, and it's all because of a bet that God makes with the Satan figure and mm. the guy never finds out about it. And his three friends give him basically a th- two explanations. And then kind of a third, like the two primary explanations are you've either done something to deserve this and you're being punished. So it's good. Um, or you haven't done anything to deserve this. This is awful. Um, but you're being given a chance to grow. So what's good, right? So, so like, it's basically, it's, you're being punished, uh, or you're being given an opportunity to improve something, uh, which like to me, like I hear like examples of like, ah, oh, it's so terrible. Like the once in a, in a, in a century pandemic is happening, but like, at least we can learn how to make bread, uh, or something like that, you know, like that type of like, kind of almost like yeah. ridiculous idea that there's something good in this, like a, as a grappling for meaning. Um, and then like the third thing in that, in that book is like, there are a few minority reports where like a character will say like, well, basically some other people have it worse, right? So you don't have a right to feel bad, um, which, which I really, I think about a lot, right? Because I'm complaining and I'm depressed and I'm very anxious about like soon having a child, bringing a child into like a, a pandemic as well. Um, but, you know, other people have it worse. So what right do you have to have feelings at all? Right. And what I, what I do love in, in, in that book is that, you know, at, at the end of the story, you know, um, just like, you know, about this problem of evil and how to understand suffering. Uh, like what's the correct way to understand what suffering means? Uh, you know, God kind of comes out of the clouds and just like, I don't, I don't get, I don't know what the fuck is going on. Joe. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't have an explanation for you. Right. Like, I, I just don't know. Um, and it, and it, it kind of like resists meaning. And I, I yeah. always like really like that interpretation of like the idea that, um, like it's, it's okay to feel things deeply and to be very, very sad at the world that we're losing. Um, the, the sad at like, not just life, lost but like the the futures that are going to be lost the career options that will be denied you um the fact that we it's not a given that you will be able to travel in the future or have a job that ever gives you any sort of security that you had before um there is there was so so many things that could be lost in all of this um and it's it's true almost for everybody in the world except for one it is true for everybody that there was somebody who has it worse, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like so, so probably somebody in the world has it as like as bad as you can possibly get, but like basically there's always somebody out there who has it worse than you. Um, uh, there's, there's nothing good in this. There's nothing, there's nothing redeeming. There are things that we can redeem out of it. Right. Then, yeah. and, 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 you know, uh, take advantage of our situations, but there is, um, we just, we need to let ourselves feel, um, how we feel about this and, and yeah. emotions are, um, they're not, they're not bad things or good things. They just are. And, and we can either let ourselves feel them or we can, uh, try to repress them and, and see where that takes us. Um, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that that's, that's the message is, is this is, this is awful. Um, it should feel awful. It's, it's, it's normal to feel awful and, and shit happens and yeah. it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, why there is so much um, of a desire to push against the shit happening and to think that there's some sort of coherence or meaning or nefarious characters or like redemptive storyline or something like that. But like at the end of the day, maybe just shit happens and there's, there's nothing more to it and, and we just have to like survive it. Had delay. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Guy, you yeah, bringing all the happy thoughts. Glad to. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Tad is the author of God is Unconscious, The Cynic and the Fool, and Against What the White Evangelical Wants. So uh, I highly, highly recommend all three of those books. Uh, they've been extremely influential in the way that I think, in the way that I work. Um, so that is worth something I'm sure, but <laughs> thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. And uh, yeah, sharing. well, this is a great idea. Yeah. No, like I, I said this before, but it's, it's been really therapeutic to, um, uh, to uh, feel like I have like a little bit of an outlet for some of these, you know, some, some of like what's been going on and like uh, thoughts that I've been having. So it's, it's, it's really meant a lot. I'm really glad that you suggested this idea. So thanks for inviting me on. Likewise, thank you for all that you do and uh, talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Cheers.